We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at Proverbs chapter, oops, five. Y'all talk among yourselves. <laughs> Not going to deal off. Organization's the key to good preaching. Chapter five. Let me give you some stats having to do with this chapter. 2018, 40% of the births in the United States are born out of wedlock. 1990, it was 28%. And the numbers are pretty much the same worldwide of children born out of wedlock. Since 73, there have been 64,300,000 abortions. 60% of American marriages are formed by couples who have lived together with that spouse or someone else at some time. The difference between those who have and who have not, according to Focus on the Family Stats, is that those who do, they are less healthy, more volatile relationships. Their breakup rates are five times higher, two times to five times higher levels of serious physical violence and emotional abuse, a decreased sense of ongoing happiness and fairness in their relationships, twice to eight times higher rates of infidelity, less equitable sharing of finances, higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse. 25% of men, 15% of women, according to the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, have cheated on their spouses from the time of 65 and up. By that time, 25% of men, 15% of women. Two-thirds of 350 divorce lawyers said that the internet played a significant role in the divorces of the past year with online pornography contributing to more than half of the divorces. Porn was almost non-existence in divorce trials before 2015. They go on to say that the top five porn websites accounted for more than six billion visits per month. That is one a month for every person on earth to a pornographic website. 90% of the scenes in pornography depict physical aggression or violence toward women, and women are the targets of 97% of violent scenes. Most young people are exposed to pornography by the seventh grade, by age 13. 84% of males, 57% of females aged 14 to 18, junior high, high school, have viewed pornography, many beginning a life of addiction. It's called by a fellow named um, Carl Truman, who wrote a book called The Emergence and uh, Triumph of the Modern Self. He called it the pornification of America. And what that means is when you take sexuality and you remove it from God, Adam and Eve, the two become one flesh, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Be fruitful and multiply. That when you take sexuality out of the area of truth, divinity, and life, and responsibilities, that what you end up with is the objectifying, usually, of sex, and particularly the objectifying of a woman, that she's nothing but an object to please a man. That biological pleasure with there is no sense of commitment and there's no sense of responsibility. And that is why couples that live together had all of those bad deals, because they went into it not with an overt, outright commitment of fidelity, no matter how they felt, to the end of their life, but so long as we both shall love. 
And once that faded, that it was over, bringing great frustrations. Uh, there are now, uh, sex has no love, no commitment, no roles, and no boundaries. There are no rules to govern the most dominating, destructive, and dangerous of drives that we have. It was called in the 60s, the sexual revolution. It was a devolution. Uh, a whole chapter on not just adultery, but sex outside the divine intent gets a whole chapter of Proverbs chapter five. And this was at the height of Israel's glory, Solomon and his kingdom following David and his kingdom. And yet he says that this can threaten our nation unless the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain who build it. Unless God guards the city, the watchmen, they keep awake in vain. It's for vain for you to rise early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. God gives to his beloved sleep. And so Solomon just says, when we forget God, we're going to go down with the individual, the family, and the cities. We're going down. Solomon. And so just stay with me on this admonition. He says in verse 1 through 14, Solomon gives a warning to my son, to the next generation. My son, give attention to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding. Wisdom and understanding is having a divine perspective. That's why whenever I do a wedding, I will spend my time at the uh, outset letting people know this is not just a male and a female that what God joins, that the, the picture of a man is God to Israel, Christ to his church. The bride is Israel to God and the church to Christ. Old and New Testament, God and his people. And that there are husbands love your wife as Christ. Wives who serve you to your husband as the church. That there are rules. Do you promise to love, honor, and cherish, forsaking all others? to keep her to yourself so long as we both shall live. And so there is a divine perspective. Whenever we get ready to do a, a wedding, they say, will you do our wedding? I say, maybe, but maybe not. You've got to show me, sir, that you have the tenderness to listen and to be gentle with this woman. And that you, madam, have the ability to uplift and to be respectful to this man because that's the hormone that neither one of us have for ourselves, is esteem. It has to get from the other one. If you can't give that, your mate is gonna to have to start manipulating you to try to get it, and that's when it gets ugly. And so he says, my son, there's wisdom and understanding here about women in marriage, and you need to listen to me. That, in verse two, you can make moral choices. You can be discreet. You can have discretion. That your lips may reserve knowledge, meaning that you will have an answer. What is a husband? It's this. What is a wife? It's this. What is sexuality? It's this. Uh, is it outside of marriage? How can I do this great sin against God and do this? And so there is the ability to see things and to make moral choices based on that. Verse three, 
The reason you need to listen to my lips to reserve knowledge is that in verse three, there's another set of lips out there. The lips of an adulteress, or you could put an adulterer. Either way, we're looking at adultery, but in the Bible, he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's a holy place. Don't let something get in there that isn't. And so this can be fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You shall not lie with a man as though with a woman. It is an abomination. There's all kinds of moral sin that you can get into. This is kind of a typical one. And so the lips of an adulteress, they drip honey. And smoother than oil is her speech, meaning that it is very deceptive. It is very ego inflating. It is very, come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. And so there's something deceptive here. Be careful. One time I had a young man in that had cratered his marriage and his children with an affair. And uh, he said to me, I felt like a high school sophomore. I never forget that. Like a fountain of youth until it was over. When I was at Dallas Seminary, we had a professor in Christian ed named Dr. Howard Hendricks. A lot of you have heard of him. Howie was five, eight, probably about, you know, in his heyday, uh, tipped it at about 225. Nice and solid, portly gentleman, ball-headed, as though that should make a difference. Uh, glasses, as that should make a difference. But this wasn't Cary Grant, okay. And he said to us one time at chapel, he said, boys, there's going to be a day when some woman's going to say to you, you're the studliest, best-looking thing she has ever seen. And Hendricks go, they say it to me too. <laughs> I never forget that. <laughs> and so she attracts you with these words, okay? But in the end, when it's all said and done, she is bitter as gall as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. There's the edge that is pleasing and the edge that will slit your throat and you will die. Her feet go down to death. Her steps go into the netherworld, into Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. She's not wondering what is the will of God. And as a result, her ways are unstable when you step out on it. You think you're in Valhalla until all of a sudden it gives way on you, and it will. Uh, I did the Song of Solomon back in 1989-90, and it was the book for our day. I didn't realize it, but when I gave it, our church grew from 700 to 1,200 in six weeks. Uh, I did it at the Metro Bible Study in Dallas, it grew from 200 to 800 in six weeks. I did it at a, we filmed it in Dallas at Prestonwood Baptist. The first night, I had 4,000 people there, Dallas singles. And uh, I found, and I did 90 Song of Solomon conferences around the country. They would show that film, that video, 
on submarines. Down then guys would, they just run it 24 seven. And these young guys would watch it. A biblical view of love, sex, attraction, marriage, romance, fidelity. Just walking you through all elements of male-female relationships. And I thought, man, I have found the, the uh, you know, what do you call it? The golden fleece of preaching right here. This is where it's at. And I realized that it was because this was the book for our day. And secular humanism, when you remove God, anything that props itself on God comes down. What is a male? What is a female? What is sex? What is marriage? What is reproduction? What is love? When you remove God, it is the pornification of America. It is biological pleasure and then walk away. And so there were so many people hurting that every time that I gave it, I said, I have hit the mother load of preaching right here. I bought four uh, Dodge Chargers on the money that I got <laughs> from writing that book. <laughs> All right. Those were the good old days. <laughs> and so the reason I started doing it was because one day at our church, I was driving up Avenue C. I saw a girl in our church walking on the sidewalk. And she was walking, yea, floating. She, you could tell, was in love. Her feet weren't touching the ground. She was talking to herself. This was before, you know, smartphone. And I just said to her, dear, you're way away from the campus. Do you need a ride? No, no. And she floated on. And I found out, indeed, she was in love with a young guy in her congregation. It went too far, too fast. And then they got bored. And then he said, I want to break up. And that was what hit me the next time I saw her. I looked out, and I was preaching long, and I looked over here, and there she was. And her body language, her arms were folded, her legs were crossed, her head was down, not looking away. Her jaw was set. And she was in pain. And after the service, I left and I looked over on the right outside the Summerall Center where we had our services then. And I saw the guy. And he was sitting with his back against the building with his chest, knees up to his chest in the fetal position, weeping unconsolably. And so I thought that's kind of the way a lot of times it starts that immorality can be like the fountain of youth. It can be like straight cocaine and you're floating, but then you get down to commitment. You know, they say there's three stages of marriage. There is uh, the honeymoon that means a sweet month. All right. And then you get what is called the disillusionment. This is who I really married. And then you got what is called commitment. Now you get down to what does God say? Here's how you feel. Forget that. What does God say? And that is true in every marriage. Amen. Every marriage. And so that's what made me say we need to get some truth 
so that when everything starts evaporating and you come down to commitment, there's got to be something there. There's got to be a reason that you do what you do. And so this woman, in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp. Her feet go to death. They take hold of Sheol. She's unstable. It's death. Verse 7, sons, listen to me. Y'all ever said that to your kid? Look this way, Cletus. Listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Let my words of truth in the Bible be a regulator for you when you feel these things. Keep your way far from her. It's like Medusa. When you have a woman on the make or a guy on the make, don't play with it. Run. What do Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, and George Patton have in common? They were all war heroes. They were all adulterers. Every one of them. So it doesn't matter who you are. Once you enter into that ambiance of what the Bible calls strange sex outside of God's will, you are vulnerable. And in verse Eight, don't go near her door. Don't trust yourself. They asked Billy Graham. They wrote a book on him called Prophet with Honor. They said, how have you gone so long without an affair? He said, because I run scared. Young man, I run scared. In verse nine, or you will give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one. It's called the cruel one because when you, when a guy particularly wanders and it's found out and you can't patch it up, sometimes you can work it back together. A lot of times you can't. And that guy particularly, and I've been a guy for years, okay, and I know how it is. When you're a guy that you did that, other guys tend to do this. Am I right, Steve? They tend to go, man, you cut and ran. You made a vow for the Trinity and you took off. When a guy does that, you just don't go to another woman. You go to another life on another planet. Your kids never completely recover. Your grandkids never completely recover. Your in-laws, darn sure, don't recover. Your friends don't recover. And so a man becomes like a, when a cicada comes out of its shell, you find a husk on a tree limb. And that's what it becomes, a husk on a tree limb. You never, I would say, from simply my experience, there's a number of things you don't want to do. Don't get into loans that you can't pay back because it'll keep you awake at night. Don't, um, what's the other one? Don't be unforgiving. I've never met a happy, unforgiving person because you always rekindle the murder every time you think about it. And it'll make you crazy. It'll make you self-righteous because you've got to see yourself as totally lovable. All right. And then thirdly, 
Do not get into premarital sex because you're going to build a fire with uh, lighter fluid. You ever built a fire with lighter fluid? <laughs> you just think you're, you know, Jeremiah Johnson right here. Look at the fire. But then what happens? If it's not substantial, it goes down. In the middle of premarital sex on a one to 10 eratometer, I just made that up. <laughs> on a one to 10 sexometer, premarital is like a 12. And then once you get married, it starts going down to an act of commitment. Okay. Adultery is like the fountain of youth. It's like straight cocaine the first time. And then all of a sudden you deal with the collateral damage that's going to come out of it. And you never, ever completely recover. So I would tell you, as an old genius 71-year-old, don't do it. Because it's wrong? Yeah, but don't think about that. You will end up a cicada husk. Don't do that. Don't do it. As long as I am faithful to my vow and faithful to my wife, I don't, it doesn't matter if I married Ma Kettle. Okay. Does anybody have any idea what I just said? All right. I can still, if my wife beats me three times a day, I'm okay. God can still use me. I cross that line and everything changes. Oh, it's just one hole in the balloon. <laughs> no, it ain't. And so you're going to give your years to the cruel one. And strangers, this woman, her family, they made no commitment to you and you to them, but they're going to be filled with your strength. Your hard-earned goods are going to go to an alien. She did not make a covenant with you. This is not a woman walking after the pattern of the child of God, and you've committed to it. Whenever Abraham sent out Eliezer, his servant, to get a wife for Isaac, it was the strongest vow of the Old Testament. He said, put your hand under my thigh. I'll just leave that right there. That means this is the strongest vow you can make, that you hold my life in your hands. You go back to my kinsman in Padan Aram and you find a wife for my son Isaac back in this little pocket of monotheism. And he said, what if she doesn't want to come with me? Should I take your son back? He said, God help you if you take my son back. If she doesn't want to come, then the deal's off. But you do not give my wife to a Canaanite like Esau is about to do. And Samson's about to do. You don't do that. And Solomon is about to do. And David is about to do. You don't do that. And so he went, what is she supposed to look like? There wasn't any deal. What kind of figure does she have? There was nothing on there. You got to get a woman that fears God. And so he goes to the well where hardworking women were going. And he says, the woman that says to me, drink, sir, and... Let your camels, camels drink also, a camel waterer. If she has character and submissiveness to the authority over, if she's a good girl, that's all we need. And guess what God gave her. And so your hard-earned goods, they're going to go to the alien. 
and you are going to groan at your final end. It will mark your life forever. Whenever a spider eats you, make a note. When it happens, you'll want to know. A spider will put its arms around you, and there's like eight of them, okay. And then they have a fang that pierces you. And they inject you with something that emulsifies your innards and turns your insides to liquid. And then they suck the life out of you. And they leave you as a shell there in the web. Okay? That's what is going to happen when you do this. So steer clear. He keeps going to say, your flesh and your body are consumed. You're not the same fella coming out that you were coming in. And you say, when it's all said and done, you become what's called a druther. If only I druther. If I druther, you're going to be an if only. You're going to be, if I had it to do all over again, you're going to be a man full of regrets. The day's coming that you're going to say, how I hated instruction. My heart spurned reproof. I haven't listened to the voice of my teachers. I was a juvenile delinquent. I was not present when brains were handed out. I didn't listen to my instructor when I was in high school. I had a coach named Lee Yearwood, and he got to talking with us boys. We were in 10th grade. He got to talking with us about marriage. And he said, boys, this guy looked just like Sergeant Carter. You remember Gomer Powell? He looked just like Sergeant Carter. So all the way down the crew cut. He said, boys, when you get married, shortly after that, uh, one of you is going to be brushing the teeth and the other one's going to be sitting on the pot. And he said, when that happens, the honeymoon's over. <laughs> you know what? Let's continue. <laughs> the, the author here says, the, the guy that's playing the part, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. They were about to inflict capital punishment on me. And I got out because I begged. And by the skin of my teeth, I got out. One guy said, if I knew how long it would hold me, how deep it would take me, how bad it would hurt me, I'd never got close to it. You become like Marley's ghost. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And the Christmas carol. You become the tormented ghost looking for rest. Well, in verse 15, he says, let me give you a little instruction. Drink water from your cistern, your wife. Be refreshed from your own well, a place of life. It's likening the woman to an opening, a cistern and a well. The physiological analogy is obvious. That's yours. That's your wife. In verse 16, your springs, a man's seed. Going into the cistern, the anatomical metaphor is obvious. It, he said, should your springs be dispersed abroad? We call hookers street walkers. You don't want to put it in the street. 
like streams of water in the street. It's a waste. It's going to attack your marriage, your home, your kids. Let them be for yours alone. It's your wife, your family, your children, your investment. You're building your fund to send them to school. It's your Christmas, your Easter, your Thanksgiving. It is your confirmation in church, your child dedication. They're your in-laws, and it's your integrity. Remember, who was that guy that was Dick Army? He said one time, are we recording this? Okay, shoot. Dick Army said, I have been faithful to my wife. He said, because the last word that I would hear would be, how do you reload this damn thing? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Don't email me, okay? And so he says, you let it be yours alone, not for strangers. That woman hasn't earned the right. She doesn't walk with God. She doesn't know God. She hasn't earned the right. She's a stranger. You let your fountain be blessed. Your wife, your home, your kids, your place of life. And you rejoice in the wife of your youth. The day that you made a vow, the day that you looked at her, standing there in that cheap suit, that tux that cost $48, okay. When you're talking to her and she looked at you and said, for better or for worse, sickness and health, you go back to that day. That's why Charles read that text. For this reason, God does not hear your prayers. Why? Because he's been a witness against you and the wife of your youth, your companion. You know what companos means in Latin? It means with bread, somebody you eat with. Your wife by covenant, he's been a witness. You have covered your garment with violence. Whenever a Jew would get married, they didn't give rings. He would take off his coat and she would come under his wing. You have covered her and she has trusted you. And then you mugged her. And so he says, God hates divorce. And he that covers his garment with violence. And so you rejoice in the wife that you still can go back to the wedding picture and look at it. You made a promise. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, you be tender toward her. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be literally intoxicated with her love. How do you get intoxicated? Don't answer, okay? To get intoxicated, you don't sip, you drink deep. You get intoxicated with her love. Enjoy. Let her breast, we're not talking about a reproductive organ right here. We're talking about pleasure. You let your wife enjoy you and you enjoy her. That's why it says in Corinthians, uh, let a man, oh, how's he put it? Um, a man does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. A wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Do not defraud each other. 
except by agreement for a season to devote yourselves to prayer, but come together soon, lest Satan tempt you for your lack of self-control. Meaning, if you're not being sexually fulfilled at home, Satan will provide you an answer. So you take care of those needs. Let a husband fulfill his duty to his wife. I used to read that and I thought, what a waste of ink. <laughs> you men have sex with your wives. Yeah, really? Boy, Eureka, great insight. Always wondered why I said that. I can't think of how many times my wife has said, I must have you. And I said, no, no, I want you. I got to have you now. Erotic child. Don't you know I'm a holy man? <laughs> no. So, be exhilarated in her love. i tell you what else I found out. I did the Song of Solomon conference 90 times, and I would talk about sexuality. I mean, Song of Solomon deals with it, all right? And uh, I would have guys come up. Well, I would usually have girls come up, and I wasn't ready for this when it happened. I would have girls come up and said, you know, I really like sex. I really like exciting sex. And I went, really? She said, yeah, I can't get my husband to do it. And I said, no. I didn't know how to respond. I found out there was all kind of women that were frustrated. I had one guy come to me. I was in Lynchburg, Virginia at Jerry Falwell's church. And this, one, this guy came up, country boy. Brother Tommy, yeah. What if in marriage, one of you's a little bit more, oh, risque. One of you's a little bit more uh, freed up, a little bit more creative. I said, I know where you're going with this. And I said, listen, you need to be careful about taking your wife somewhere she don't want to go. He said, oh, no, it's her. <laughs> I said, you know, where I come from, that's called a prayer request. <laughs> My dang wife is just too erotic. Yeah, I know. He likes dressing up and it stop right there. So I found out, no, that is not a verse that doesn't need to be there. And so he says, why should you embrace the bosom of a foreigner that has no commitment? Do y'all remember a story of a guy named Amnon, son of David, had a sister, a half sister named Tamar? And it said, he said, I'm in love with her. But he said he made himself sick because he was so in love with her. And he said, it's hard for me to do anything to her. You see where his head is. It's hard for me to do anything to her. She's, this would be incest. She's my father's daughter by another woman. And he goes to a guy that's his, his cousin. And he says, here's what you do. David's brother, it's his kid. And he says, here's what you do. 
You're like the king in waiting. You're the prince. Don't ask. You tell her that you need some food and you need her to cook for you. Tell her to come into the bedroom and bring it to the bed. Then lock the door and do what you need to do. It's called a klepto tyrant. Just do what you need to do. He said, that sounds pretty good. And so he did. And he got Tamar in there. And he said, lie with me, my sister. And he, she saw what was coming. She said, oh, my brother, do not do this foolish thing. Ask my father. He'll not withhold me from you. That was just kind of a get some time, get away from you. He'll not withhold you. And he grabbed her and he took her by force. He raped his half-sister. Then you know what he did when he finished? It said he looked at her and his hatred for her was greater than his love. Because he looked at her and he saw guilt, responsibility, and uh, strings attached. That this demands a life. How many times has a woman found herself in the midst of passion only to see a guy hit the door? Because he's thinking, this is a commitment. And I'm not ready for that. I wanted 15 minutes. I don't want a life. And she is used. And so he said, quote, throw the woman out and then lock the door. He wouldn't even say her name. Throw her out, lock the door and don't let her back in. She left weeping and taking her sleeves that widows wore and ripped them off. And she said, the last thing you did is worse than the first. You have left me. That's what Jesus meant when he said about divorcing your wife for no reason. You adulterize her. You stigmatize her. And that's what you did. And if you remember, he had a brother named Absalom. David didn't do anything. Absalom chewed on it. And then he killed him. And so that's what happens when a guy says, I have no commitment to you other than biological pleasure. It's painful. And so the eyes of a man are before the eyes of God. God sees you and God watches his path and his iniquities will capture you. It's going to come back on you. You're not going to walk away from this. You're going to be a cicada hull. He'll be held with the cords of his sin. Proverbs, can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? No, you're not going to walk away from this. Incidentally, are y'all notice where the onus, the onus of responsibility is given? It's the man. It's the man. And God sought Adam, where are you? Adam, have you eaten? The woman, no, you. And so in 23, he'll die for his lack of instruction because he's not governed. He'll give way to the drives of his life and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. The immoral man, Paul said, sins against his own body. Now, let me close with this. At Denton Bible, we don't send out engraved invitations to 4,000 Denton virgins, okay? Our church is full of sinners that look at this and go, whoa. As a matter of fact, when I taught this at Metro, single study in Dallas, they were recording it and I would have to stop through the message because the girls would be doing this. Wishing they'd had it to do over. 
And the guys wouldn't do this. They would just look straight ahead like they were polexed. Thinking about, boy, was I dumb. And so you do, you have to stop because none of us are clean. If I had to, I would say, how many of you, premarital or marital, were hurt greatly by male-female relationships? Virtually every hand would go up. And so this is a dangerous place. And so uh, if you have messed up, it's easier to mess up if you did it as an unbeliever. It's easier to walk away from. Uh, Paul put it like this. Listen to this. To the Corinthians, they were having oodles of problems down there on the coast, trimming their sails to different ideas of the world. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor the effeminate. In a homosexual relationship, you'll have a male type and a female role. It talks about the soft right here, that which is the female role. And then he says, the effeminate nor the arsenokoites, the male in the bed, the guy that plays the male role. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor inherit the kingdom of God. That kind of person typified by that lifestyle is not called a Christian. And then Paul says this, and such were some of you. Isn't that the most comforting verse in the New Testament? But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. You used to be this and you got burned and now God has cleansed you. Every man in Christ is a new creation. You are his workmanship created in Christ. So that is why whenever I would teach at Metro, Steve, I would say to him, I'd stop and say, listen, this is why he's called Savior and Redeemer. He can forgive you. You can say to a woman who's had five husbands and now is living with a guy, you can say, go and sin no more. And you can start all over. Isn't that marvelous? You can have killed people as the Apostle Paul, and you can start all over. And so, if you have messed up, be of good cheer. But if you are a believer, it's more difficult to do this. Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. This is your sanctification that you abstain from immorality. That every man possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor. You've got to control your body. It can't control you. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you. Don't transgress your brother by messing with his wife. Don't covet. Don't even look at her. That's another man's. And he says, uh, well, it happens. Can there be restoration? Yes, I can give you names in this congregation that have stumbled and humbled themselves and admitted where both had failed and came back and God fixed it. But it's, it's, a, it's a harder process. So 
And if you're the offended one and you're going to have to forgive, I always tell who the, the party is that's sinned against. And I say, are you wanting to get this together? Yes, I, I want to fight for it. Good. Now, when you say forgive, you have to forgive. You can't forgive until your mind starts wandering because the offended partner, the offender feels better once it comes out. The one offended against, their struggle has now begun. And that, in this case, a woman, I have to say to her, if you're going to forgive, you have to really forgive. You can't let it go until you're sitting there at the table and you think, where were you last Thanksgiving? Oh, that was when I went to see my brother. Is that where you were? You dirty. And all of a sudden, what she would do is they will put their mate down in a basement until they remember it. And then they'll bring them up periodically and beat them and send them back down. I said, you can't do that. If you're going to forgive, you've got to really forgive. And I say to the guy, you can't get mad when she says, I want you to call me. You lost that privilege until she's willing to let you go. And so it takes a bit of doing to bring them back. A little bit more pain, regret, damage, and trust. Point, don't go near it and never worry. Amen? Don't go near it and never worry. Can all of us mess it up? Yes, there ain't a one of you that, that, and when the day you think you can't, you're in trouble. When I got married, there was a guy named Jack Brandenberger. Anybody remember him? Dear old fellow, and he told me, he said, there's going to be times with your wife, you're going to want to, like, like a bank, you're going to want to make a withdrawal. And he said, you can't unless you've been making deposits. You got to build into her, build into her, build into her. And then when there's the knock on the night, it's a lot easier for her to respond. Otherwise, she is now being self-punitive. And so you make it easy for your wife to submit. It was the best counsel I ever got. There was a song. I looked for a number of songs in our hymn book about uh, promiscuity and adultery, and I couldn't. <laughs> They're just a problem, you know, to find. Kenny Rogers talked about a guy who gets on a train bound for nowhere and there's a fellow on the train that's a gambler. You with me? And the gambler looks at him and he says, son, I've made a living out of reading people's faces. Knowing what their cards are by the way they held their eyes. And if I can say so, you're out of aces. And for a drink of your whiskey, I'll give you some advice. Every gambler knows that the secret to surviving is knowing what to throw away and knowing what to keep. Because every hand's a winner or every hand's a loser. When you get five cards in poker, it can be a winning hand or a losing hand, right? You got to know what to throw away, what ain't no good and what's to keep. You got to make a moral decision in life. I don't need that. I need this. 
You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. And like Joseph, know when to run. And you never count your money while you're sitting at the table. You ain't won yet. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. You're going to have to do this to the end of your life. Make moral decisions. Amen. And that's how you survive. And you got to know when to walk away and when to run. Now you say, oh, I never heard that. How about eagles? <laughs> what was the guy, the lead singer? John Henley. John, Don Henley. Listen closely. He's from Tyler, Texas. You know where he went to college? North Texas State University. Along with Robocop and Meatloaf. Yeah. Desperado, you better come to your senses. You've been out riding fences for so long now. You're a hard one. Boy, you've got your reasons, but the things that are pleasing you will hurt you somehow. Don't you bet the queen of diamonds, boy. She'll hurt you if she's able. The queen of hearts is always your best bet. You know, there's been some fine things that are laid upon your table, but you always want the things that you can't get. Desperado, probably writing that to a buddy of his about to crater his marriage. You know, don't go for the queen of diamonds. Go for the queen of hearts. She's your best bet. You got life right here, but you want what you can't get. You better get off the fence and come home. Isn't that good? Father in heaven, we all live amidst this in this world. And we are called someday to take our place as the bride of Christ in the presence of our beloved. And Israel shall be restored to her beloved prince someday. The very grounding of our life is that in the faithfulness of God. I pray, Father, for men and women who will be lovable. And I pray for mates that would be faithful to that. Because no matter how tough a marriage is, if we are faithful, we are able to preach anywhere with a good conscience. But when we mess up, the righteous flee, or rather the, the righteous are as bold as lions, but the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. We lose our confidence. And so I pray that if we need to put our arms around that little smaller person, she needs to put her arm around us and we need to say, uh, I keep my eyes wide open all the time because you're mine. And we'll pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.